0: Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. If you're using your pew Bibles, you can find it on page 802. So uh, a little bit more than two-thirds of the way through the Bible, page 802. We're going to be picking up in verse 17 of Malachi, chapter 2. And as we've already heard kind of woven through the service, uh, the sermon and the text this morning gets at something that's pretty fundamental to all of our lives, and that is the quest for justice. We all long for justice, and as basic as that is, as basic an instinct as it is to uh, try and get justice for ourselves, this quest for justice can actually get complicated pretty quickly. As human beings, we all have this innate sense that we deserve justice. And, simultaneously, we each have an innate sense that we are individually and personally pretty good at dispensing justice fairly. And so, we're pretty quick to call out someone for being unjust and unfair to us, and we are also pretty quick to bristle whenever anyone else says that we, ourselves, are unfair or unjust. That's kind of a funny contradiction in the human experience. You can just look at any elementary school playground to see those two dynamics at play against each other. You will never see more hot anger on a playground than from a kid who thinks they've been treated unfairly or from a kid who's just been accused of being unfair. Kids are passionate about receiving justice and they're passionate about being known as just people. So as humans, we believe that we deserve justice. We believe that we are pretty good at being just ourselves. And we believe that other people around us are not nearly as good as being just as we are. And so that creates a pretty fundamental tension in any human relationship. Well, in Malachi chapter 2, our passage for this morning, we see that the people apply that dynamic to God. The people in this text are judging God's justice, and they find it to be lacking. And this conclusion drives them toward grumbling, and it highly offends God. It is a tense conversation that we're invited to overhear this morning. But my goal in the sermon is to uh, allow us to feel the tension because it's a tension that's actually pretty deep in all of our own hearts as well. Every single one of us, at one point or another, has had to ask the question is God really just? Is God actually as just as he says that he is? And this passage gives us God's personal response to that burning question that we all have at one point or another in our hearts. God's answer to us from this text moves us from accusation and anger and despair to repentance, uh, to reformation, and even to hope. And so let's lean in to this hard conversation that God wants to have with his people. There are some tense moments in it, but in the end he offers us salvation. And so let's give God our full attention now so that we can hear how God himself answers the question about his justice. This is Malachi chapter 2, the word of God, beginning in verse 17. We'll be going through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our God, we pray your anointing on this time through your spirit that you would speak true things to us from your word. Give us grace, O God. Minister to us in those hidden secret places in our heart where we all ask the same question that these people are asking in our text. Even now, Lord, let us hear your voice confirming your justice and giving us hope. So minister to us now through your word, through your spirit, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. It's surprisingly easy to question God's judgment, isn't it? I think if we're all honest with ourselves, this is something that we've all wondered at one point in time. You hear in the scriptures that God cares for his people. You hear that God protects his saints then as you look out throughout the rest of life, you see so much injustice, and it is easy to wonder, God, you say you care about justice, so why do you allow injustice? And especially, why do you allow injustice to happen to your people? I had to ask that question a lot when I was in college. I was a social work major, and so I saw a lot of injustice. Uh, I did a lot of work with the homeless, and so I saw a lot of suffering. And I read a lot about the global church and some of the things that were happening in more restrictive countries, and I saw a ton of oppression. And so in all of these situations that I was working in, I would hear people express faith in God, even in the midst of great, tremendous suffering. And so I had to keep asking, why does God tolerate injustice, especially toward those who trust in him? That's a question that can shake the faith of the strongest Christian. And if you don't have a good answer to it, then you can start to lose hope as you look out in the world and continue to see injustice after injustice perpetrated against people and against Christians. And so when you see that happening again and again, if you don't have a good answer and a firm foundation for your faith, then you can start to question God's character. And that's exactly what happens in our text. Verse 17 You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you, the people, say, How exactly have we been wearying him? And the answer is the words from their mouths and from their hearts. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The people are fundamentally accusing God of being unjust. And to, to unpack this profound accusation against the Most High, we need to remember the story, where the people are coming from, and what they've experienced. So the book of Malachi, to recap a little bit about the background, Malachi was writing after the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And he was writing, before the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people had returned to the land after their 70-year exile in Babylon, but they returned to a really hard life. In this situation, this new world that they were in, they were politically marginalized, they were socially, societally oppressed, and they were economically disadvantaged. And so they started to lose hope. They kind of started to take care of themselves before taking care of the holy things of God. But they rallied to the cause when Haggai and Zechariah said, Build God's house, rebuild the temple, take up your faith. And they did. They did that, they rebuilt the temple. But then nothing seemed to change. Nothing happened. They remained marginalized, oppressed, and disadvantaged. And meanwhile, these evil pagan nations around them seemed to be doing quite fine for themselves. In fact, they seemed to be flourishing. And so the people began to grumble like we hear about in our text. Apparently, if we judge God by the way the world works, God is actually okay with injustice. God must be happy with these nations because he's not coming to judge them. He's not stopping their injustice. If God actually cared about justice, where is he? And that's a cry of a discouraged and dejected people. And it's one that we are all too familiar with in our own lives. We are human persons. We each have immeasurable dignity as being made in God's image, but we live in a broken world and are subjected to evil and suffering and disappointment all of the time. From major crises like violence and sickness and death, to larger than average problems like missed job opportunities, underemployment, or the car breaking down. Uh, even all the way down to small trials like stubbed toes or missing keys. And the cumulative weight of all of this grief that we have to bear in this life adds up to one big heart cry, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so we rightly recoil when we experience evil and suffering and disappointment, but because we are sinful... We recoil at these things and then immediately point the finger back at God and say, You did this to me. You did this. It's enough to make us question in our hearts, cynically asking, Where is this God of justice that we hear about in the scriptures? Well, the prophet Malachi gives us God's response. God has a reply to that question and it's at once a glorious reply and it's also kind of ominous when we listen to what he has to tell us. Well, first he lets us into his heart for a moment. How does God feel about the people's accusation? Well, he's grieved by it. He's offended by it. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. We have wearied God with those accusations. And that word, wearied, in verse 17 that we hear twice, it means burdened or troubled. God is troubled by these things. John Calvin translates this as saying, uh, as, as having God say, You have saddened my spirit. God is grieved. He doesn't like it when we say wrong things about him, and he especially doesn't like being called unjust because God is passionate about justice. As much as you love justice, God loves justice far more. God is passionate about justice. We saw that in a previous sermon on Psalm 72. We saw that last week in last week's sermon. He tells us in Psalm 33, five: the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Or Isaiah 61, eight: I, the Lord, love justice. Zephaniah 3.5 says that the Lord does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. God passionately cares about justice. And God is passionately opposed to injustice. Throughout those scriptures, he is constantly denouncing those who perpetrate injustice, especially against his people. Zephaniah 3.1 says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Or Proverbs 22.8, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. It's a gross mischaracterization of God to accuse him of doing just injustice or loving injustice or even turning a blind eye toward injustice. So God says, it saddens me to hear you say that because it's totally untrue. I am a just God and I will exercise justice. Let me show you how I'm going to do that, and here's where things get a little bit tense in our text. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, God essentially says, oh, I will judge injustice, but I'm waiting for the right time. I'm waiting for the right time because when I come to judge, I will judge injustice everywhere I find it. And that should give us some pause. Think of it like this, the phrase, your father will be home at five, means two totally different things depending on the circumstances of the day, right? If it's a sunny, beautiful day and the bikes are out and the child is jumping up and down with excitement, your father will be home at five is wonderful news. But if the child has been naughty all day long, your father will be home at five carries some fairly ominous undertones. And so when God says, oh, I'm about to show up, then we should pause and ask ourselves the question, are we ready for that? And that's the invitation in this text. The people think that they are ready for the judge to come. But God says, you are not nearly as ready as you think you are. Uh, Behold, I will send my messenger, verse one, and he will prepare the way before me. And that language of preparing the way, you've heard it before. It's talking about how a people would make a road for the king to come into town. And if you need to have a smooth path, and there's a lot of rubble in the way, you got to clear out all of the debris in order to make way for the king. So there's, when God says, uh, you're going to need me to come to you, but I need to clear the way first, he's telling the people there's actually a lot of obstacles in the way for me to come. There's a lot of debris in the way, and it's your unbelief. It's your unbelief that's the clutter in the highway. And so in order for me to come, I need to prepare the way first to clear out all of the stuff that's in the way. And then when he clears the way, let's continue in verse 1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There's a, an element of surprise in this. God will all of a sudden show up and the first place he goes is The temple the holy place, the heart of his covenant people. He, he's not going to go around to all of these unjust nations and judge them first like the people want him to. No, he's going to show up at his house and check out the state of affairs that's there. He's going to have a look around in his people first. Like 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if the affairs are not in order, then that is not necessarily happy news. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer, of course, is no one. Certainly not the unrighteous person because he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. We can't stand before that. Now, there is actually some encouraging news here. This is part of the glorious nature of this promise that God will come to judge. There, we hear in the text that God's judgment will have a purifying effect. A refiner's fire makes better metal. A fuller soap creates a clean garment. And so God's judgment will make a pure people. And that's really encouraging. Like we hear in verse 3, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old and as in former years, that is wonderful news, as we've seen so far in Malachi. One of the main problems that the people had is that they had bad priests. And so, when God says, I'm going to purify the priests, he's saying, I'm also by extension going to purify you. I'm going to receive your offering again. Finally, in that day, you will be able to enjoy the covenant relationship of intimacy that you used to have and that you so crave even now. So, this is a glorious promise, but it is also a warning. God's judgment refines something by removing something. A refiner's fire burns off the dross. A fuller's soap removes the dirt. And so God's judgment will purify the people by removing unjust people from their midst. We hear in verse 5, then I will draw near to you. And at first we're like, hooray, that's exactly what we want. But then God goes on, and then I will draw near to you for judgment. Yikes. Yikes. That's a a hard word for us to hear. God says in the text, "You think you're good at justice, but you're not nearly as good as you think you are. You accuse me of tolerating injustice, but look at what you look at what you tolerate: sorcerers who practice divination to try and predict the future and act as a substitute for faith in God; adulterers who break the marriage covenant by sleeping with someone else's spouse." Liars who are going to swear falsely and break their word in order to have personal gain. Thieves, rich thieves who are going to steal the honest wages from the day laborer and oppressors who refuse to help the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and instead exploit their weaknesses for gain, just like we heard about in last week's sermon. And then God uh, gives kind of the the killing blow. He declares the sin that's underneath all of this other stuff. It's that we have failed to fear God. He says, you don't fear me. That's the baseline issue. The people don't actually fear or honor or respect God. They have placed themselves as God's judge. And meanwhile, they've allowed themselves to do whatever they want to do, contrary to God's rule. Now, just to be clear, When God says, uh, I am going to come and judge, he's not like a cranky old guy who's just mad at everybody. There's an episode of Portlandia where one of the characters gets diagnosed with early onset grump. Uh, And after receiving this diagnosis of early onset grump, Oscar the Grouch gives him some advice. Enjoy it and go out and judge everybody. That's the advice, but that's not what's happening here. God doesn't have early onset grumpiness. No, these five categories of sin are intimately tied into God's own heart of justice and mercy. The Ten Commandments that God gives pushes against all of these different sins, and then individually throughout God's word in the Old Testament, he condemns each and every one of them specifically because they are very bad, and they go against his character of justice and mercy. He loves faithfulness. He loves truth. He loves the vulnerable. And so whenever we break his rules, it angers him because it goes against his character. And none of us is innocent. None of us is innocent of breaking God's rules. And so God must act. God is holy. God is just. He must come to judge injustice. But he's waiting for the right time Because when he comes, he will judge injustice everywhere he finds it, beginning in his own house with his own people. That's his reply to our accusation. So how are we supposed to respond to that? If there were a facial expression that would kind of characterize the right response to God saying that, it would be this. Oh my. I mean, what else can you do when God looks right at us and says, oh, I'll judge injustice everywhere I see it. Hint, hint, hint. He's talking about us. And so the only right response that we can do at that point in time is to be quiet. To put our hand over our mouth and eventually say, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Sorry, Lord. And that's what this text does for us. This text drives us to repentance. Of all of the commentaries that I read on this sermon uh, text, that's the unanimous opinion of every single one of them. This text causes us to repent for our sin. It drives us to repentance by convicting us of the state of our hearts. When we accuse God of being unjust, And he looks right at us and says, well, before you judge me as being unjust, judge yourself. The best thing and the only right response is for us to repent. We need to repent. Here's what John Calvin says about this text. He says, this text ought to be a warning to us in the present day. That we may not call forth God's judgment on others while we flatter ourselves as being innocent. It's kind of like driving down the road and having someone cut you off, and then you kind of mutter under your breath, I hope that guy gets what he deserves, while ignoring the fact that you're breaking the speed limit on the way. It's hypocrisy. And we all do it. We think that we are better at justice than everyone else, but we are not. And so anytime you ask God to judge injustice and sin, you need to make sure that your own sins are confessed first. And that's actually what the Lord's prayer teaches us, that we prayed earlier in the service. We pray, your kingdom come. And then we move pretty quickly to forgive us for our sins. Because if God's kingdom comes and our sins are not forgiven, then that judgment is going to land really heavily on our shoulders. Who can stand before the Lord when he comes to judge? No one. So we need to repent. And then we need to reform. Malachi's condemnation of sin in this passage was meant not merely to get the people to say, I'm so sorry, but it was meant to get them to change, to stop these behaviors and become more righteous like God wanted his people to be. The Old Testament scholar Andrew Hill writes, Malachi recognized that spiritual decline may be reversed by a renewal movement that includes moral reform. Hence, implicit in his threat of divine judgment is the call for the practice of social justice. And he is absolutely right. These people needed moral reform that extended out into the social sphere. They were mad at the world for oppressing them, while they turned right around and oppressed each other. And so God names their sins so that they would stop. After we repent of sin, we need to commit ourselves to reform. And specifically, we should try to look for reform in our own lives along the lines of the three categories of sin that are named in this text, uh, which would be uh, spiritual practices, bad spiritual practices, also sexual practices, and social practices. That's kind of the three realms that we see on display. We need reformation in all of them. We need to be faithful to God by avoiding any kind of form of mysticism or any form of replacing God, a practical replacement of faith in God. We need to be faithful to marriages by not committing any sort of sexual sin, whether we are single or whether we are married. And we need to be faithful to God's world by being committed to community justice in our midst. This cry for justice should propel us toward doing justice. Repentance leads to reform. That's a ton of pressure, though, isn't it? I mean, how can we possibly reform ourselves enough to completely, totally avoid God's wrath against sin? Like, it can't be done. And so, we need to trust in Jesus And it's Christ that brings us to hope in this passage. Jesus is the clear fulfillment of this prophecy that we hear in Malachi chapter 3. As we read in the New Testament, the first messenger that we hear about in chapter 3, verse 1, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to clear away the rubble and decay of unbelief in God's people by preaching a message of repentance and by preparing a way for the Messiah to come. And that Messiah, the promised one, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom we seek. He's the one who fulfills all of God's covenant promises to dwell in the midst of his people and to shower them with blessing upon blessing. It is Jesus who purifies us from our sins, enabling us to offer a pure offering to God. And he did it by dying on the cross as our mediator. And so because Jesus has forgiven us for our sins, when he comes to judge the world, it's actually a day of celebration for Christians It's something that we can look forward to. See, when the debt debt collector comes to town, if you owe money, if you're in debt, then that is not a fun day when the debt collector comes around. But if you don't owe anything, then the day of reckoning actually becomes a day of celebration because you get to enjoy the benefits of being debt-free. Uh, recently, I was talking with my two youngest children about what a shopping trip entailed. And so we we're kind of going through the different steps of a shopping trip. And, uh, and, and so they said, um, you go to the store, you fill your cart, and then you take your stuff to the car. And I said, wait, 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 we missed a really important step. There's something that needs to happen after you fill your cart and before you leave with all your stuff. What needs to happen at that point in time? And Eden said, check out. I said, yes, that's absolutely right. You need to check out. And what happens at checkout? Me thinking that's where you pay for your stuff, right? Well, she said, here's what happens at checkout. You get stickers and a lollipop. (laughs) Because at the grocery store, that's what she gets at checkout. She gets stickers and a lollipop. See, she doesn't owe the store any money. So checkout for her is a delightful time. It is something to look forward to. She's not like the adult who's wondering, man, how much is all this going to cost? No, she is not worried about payments. She just gets to enjoy the benefits, and that's how it is for us in Christ. When the judge comes again, we will be declared not guilty, We'll get to enjoy profound intimacy with God, and finally, for once in life, we will be able to rest in the relief of not encountering any injustice anymore, because Christ will finally cleanse this world of all injustice and unrighteousness. In Christ, we can have hope, and hope gives us the permission and freedom to lament injustice, and it gives us the strength to endure. Whenever we experience injustice and cry to God for help, we can do so with hope. Because God's final answer to injustice is Christ. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and Christ coming again. And that's what this passage promises us. And so, in the end, what can we say? Is God unjust? No. No, he's not. So then, why does God tolerate injustice? It's to give the world time to repent, time to reform, time to trust in him. He is waiting for the right time because Christ is coming to judge. And when he does, he will judge injustice everywhere. And so repent of your sin and change your way of life, but do so with hope In Christ, because in Christ, God's return will have the sweetness of a father's reunion with his long lost children. We'll be able to say, at last, we are home in a place where justice will reign forevermore. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you for this promise of justice. And we immediately are caught up short. We repent. We repent of our own hypocrisy and injustice towards others, and we repent of our lack of faith and accusing you of being unfair to us when we suffer. Forgive us. Strengthen our faith. Help us to bear up under uh, the trials of life, ultimately hoping in Christ's return. And we do pray for that return, O Lord. We lament so much injustice in the world. Please protect your people in the midst of it. Be kind to us as your church, to Christians throughout the world, Uh, and uh, in your delay, we pray uh, that those who are oppressors would become Christians and and would turn to reconcilers. Uh, We pray that many would turn to Christ in this time of your forbearance before judgment comes. And so we ask that you would grant repentance to many of our friends and our neighbors and to the rest of the world and give us all hope in Christ as we await the great day of his second coming. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.